This morning, saints, with God's help, we will just be considering one verse. Revelation chapter 12 and verse 6. Then the woman fled into the wilderness, where she had a place prepared by God, so that there she would be nourished for 1,260 days. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word. Let us now go to God and ask that he would bless the preaching of his word. Gracious Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, be with us now as we consider this most pivotal verse. Help us, Lord, to have minds that understand, to have eyes that see, to have ears that hear and hearts that believe. Dear Father, please give us hands and feet that obey. I decrease that you may increase, be glorified in Christ, and we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Well, good morning, saints. I greet you in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and welcome you on this Lord's Day Sabbath as we continue our study through the Apocalypse of John. Uh, We come this morning to just one single verse here in this 12th chapter. I wonder if you uh, are like me in wanting to understand why this verse especially is so significant. So significant that this morning we would devote an entire sermon to just this one verse. When we last considered the book of Revelation, we pondered the question, along with the Apostle John, why do the nations rage or wrath against the Lord and His anointed? The question, as you know, comes from Psalm 2. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take their counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. You remember this verse. You will remember from the last time that we were in Revelation that the Apostle John in Revelation 11 appears to only pose the question, why do the nations rage, and only give the the ultimate conclusion to what will become of the nations who rage or wrath against the Lord and His anointed. We learn that the nations who who, uh, conspire together, that they are really a composite of just one nation, that is the kingdom of darkness, Satan's kingdom. And their end shall be this, judgment and destruction. All of the saints in heaven will one day say, and we will be among those voices, Revelation eleven fifteen, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. We learn that the ultimate end for the kingdom of darkness will be that it is swallowed up by the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ. To the kingdom of God, there shall be no end. To the kingdom of God, there shall be no longer any opposition. Those who oppose the Lord and His anointed shall suffer the righteous judgment of God. Satan's kingdom shall fall, saints. But it is important to reiterate that John has not left the question of why nations rage. He's not left that in the rearview mirror. Here in this chapter, 
John is answering the question. In the 12th chapter, John, or the 12th chapter, is called by theologians the key to the entire book of Revelation. Theologians call this particular chapter the key to the entire book of Revelation. In fact, our last sermon could be called an accurate summary of the entire book of Revelation. The nations rage. Why? Because of the gospel promise of God. That through the woman, a royal seed would be born, who would ultimately crush the head of the serpent, the devil, and put an end to him, to sin and to death. And there will only be one kingdom, the kingdom of God. This is the summary of the whole book of Revelation. Christ wins. If you ever, if someone ever says to you, tell me, what have you learned thus far in your studies in Revelation? Say to them simply this, Christ wins. Christ is victorious. And because Christ is victorious, we are victorious in him. That's good enough, I think. Because Satan's time is short, though. He is determined to unleash his fury upon the woman who is pregnant with the royal seed. And even now, the church is pregnant with the seed of the gospel. When the gospel goes forth, sons and daughters come to, to believe in God. They are born again. Satan unleashes all of his hatred upon the woman in a limited manner because he is limited by God to do so. We learn that this woman is not exclusively Mary, the mother of Jesus. She's also not exclusively Eve, the mother of the first child. But that she symbolizes the church, the saints throughout all of the ages, from the Old Testament and the New Testament, throughout all the redemptive history. She's given majestic descriptions in verse 1, chapter 12, that are meant to convey her majesty and her protection from being corrupted by the dragon, Satan himself. Her protection is not a physical protection. We cannot uh, depend upon God to physically protect and sustain our lives per se. But we can depend upon God to protect and sustain our souls. That our souls will not be lost, even though our lives are lost. Her body may be afflicted, but her soul shall not be lost to the dragon. She, the woman, the church shall not be deceived unto death, though the dragon pursues her unto death. The woman represents again all of the saints from the Old Testament and the New Testament. And even today, until Christ returns. While she waits, she is pursued. While she waits for what? We'll talk about that in a moment. While she waits, she is persecuted by the dragon. She is uh, persecuted even unto death by the dragon. Who thirsts for her blood. The blood of the righteous. This is why he is red. He possesses a false wisdom. A limited power, a counterfeit glory that he utilizes to deceive the nations in order to build and gain an army to assist him in his opposition to God and to his anointed. It's not what John is alluding to, isn't it? It's what the, the prophet David, King David, describes in Psalm 2. Brothers and sisters, who but Satan could be behind the conspiring of the nations to, the, to destroy the church? Who but Satan could be behind this hatred? And again, for what purpose? To oppose the Lord and His anointed, who has guaranteed on oath that He will come and destroy the works of Satan and even Satan himself. Satan has gone from deceiving the woman who deceived her husband to deceiving the nations in order to build an army of vipers who hate God and who join Satan in his kingdom in his attempts to destroy the woman who is pregnant with the royal seed. 
But the response of God from Psalm 2 is fantastic. When you get a chance later on this afternoon, read, read Psalm 2, contemplate on Psalm 2, and contemplate on God's response to Satan's attempts to thwart his redemptive plans. He who sits in the heavens laughs. He who sits in the heavens scoffs at them. All of their attempts will be vain. David, speaking in an anthropopathic manner, attributes amusement to God and amusement to his works to attempt to to stop his plans to redeem. All of their efforts shall be in vain. Satan is defeated. God has established his king. Psalm 2 and verse 4, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. The Lord has established who shall reign as king over all in spite of all of the efforts of all of the kingdoms who conspire together to oppose God. God has established His Son. The eternal Word made flesh to reign as king over all. Christ the Son. Christ shall rule all of the nations and those who oppose Him shall be shattered like pottery. The Old Testament people of God held fast to the promise of God. Even when they cried out for relief from their oppressors, they held fast. The writer of the Hebrews testifies in chapter 11 that those of the Old Testament were tortured, mocked, scourged, put in chains, put in prison, stoned, sawn in two, if you can imagine, tempted, put to death by the sword, destitute, afflicted, uh, wandered in deserts, in mountains, in caves, but they gained approval through their faith even though they did not see the promise for which they had believed in, even though they held fast to the promise which they never fully uh, uh, received. Satan, all the time, stood over the woman, as it were, as she is preparing to give birth, sweeping away as many of the righteous as he could, seeking to prevent the promise of God from coming to pass. And all of his efforts, all in vain, all in vain, all in vain. He could not stop the son from being born and he could not stop the children of the son, you and I, from being born again. Imagine all the things that you've known, all the things that you've experienced in your life and yet Satan could not thwart God's plans to redeem you. All in vain. All in vain. God will save all whom he has intended to save. No, salvation will not be stopped. God's plan to redeem will not be thwarted. He will bring all of His children into the land of promise. She gave birth, Revelation 12, 5, to a son, a male son, who is to rule the nations with a rod of iron. David's prophecy, it has come to pass. The eternally begotten from the Father has come. Emmanuel has been born. God with us. The God-man in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ has been born. He has lived and was caught up to glorious life. He's enthroned in heaven as king over all. Satan's defeat has been accomplished in the incarnation. Satan's defeat has been accomplished in the life of the divine exemplar. Satan's defeat has been accomplished in the sacrificial, substitutionary, atoning death of Christ, who has laid down his life for his own. And Satan's defeat has been accomplished in Christ in power, taking up his life again, defeating the grave, and according to, and ascending to his rightful place at the right hand of God the Father. 
Christ is the victorious saints. It's what we've come to celebrate today, isn't it? This is not a funeral service. This is a celebration of the victory of life, Christ's life over death. And so it is the exact opposite of a funeral service. It is a true celebration. There's uh, trends today now when there is a funeral, there is, they call it a celebration of life. Uh, no, someone has actually died. You mourn the death. No, we are not mourning a death. We are celebrating life unto life. Life unto glorious life. We have come to celebrate that Christ is victorious, that Satan is defeated, and that because Christ is victorious, we are victorious who have placed his faith in him. He is a defeated foe. But yet, in spite of him being a defeated foe, that has not quenched his desire for your and my blood. He still pursues the woman. He still pursues us. His defeat has actually only fueled his desire even more to destroy all of the sons of the seed. For he knows that his time is short. And so he will seek to bring down all that he can with him as he is going down. John will say five times in the next coming verses, he is thrown down, Satan. He is thrown down. He is thrown down. But he will attempt to bring you down too as he is going down. As the saints of the Old Testament held fast to the promise that God would send a son to destroy Satan, sin, and death. So the saints of the New Testament, you and I, we are New Testament saints. I hope that you know that. We likewise, we await the promise that God will send his son. That the son will return. That he will bring us to the place that he has prepared for us. And while we wait, those saints, be, be aware. Satan has fixed his eye upon us. That he might attempt to destroy us. As he attempted to destroy the faith of our brothers and sisters in times past. But like them, you and I, God has promised to provide a place for us in the wilderness where we shall be nourished. This morning then, with God's help, we will consider the place of nourishment. With at least three notes that we might learn from this place in the wilderness. Number one. The place of wilderness is a place of freedom and protection. What is this place in the wilderness? Number one, it is a place of freedom and it is a place of protection. Verse 6 of chapter 12. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God. We'll get to the end part of that verse in just a moment. The son has been born, caught up to God and to his glorious throne. John's next words must be examined carefully then so as not to misconstrue what John is communicating to the church symbolically. At first glance, it may appear as though the woman is now abandoned, that she is left alone, that she is now faced with the awful task of facing the dragon on her own. The royal son has been born. He's the ruler of the nations, but, but he seems to have disappeared. No longer being present when the woman needs him most. It, is, it would appear as though she's, listen to this, running for her life. That she has uh, gone through the streets of wherever she's at, only to find herself now out in the open, susceptible to the dangers that are now there in the wilderness because the sun is no longer anywhere. It, it, 
that she is fleeing out of fear. You see the word fleeing, right? It says he's fleeing out of fear of the dragon because he has been defeated and determined to destroy her now. Well, the question will be asked over and over again in this sermon. What is this place in the wilderness to which the woman runs? Let us be careful not to take our John to give us clarity. What is this place, John? Well, John, as a way of a cue for us or a clue for us so that we might know exactly what he is talking about. Uh, wilderness, the word itself is used often throughout all of the scriptures, but John's primary background for this particular verse is the exodus of the children of Israel from bondage who escape into the wilderness or flee. And we'll use another word in just a moment, flee into the wilderness. Israel was promised that a deliverer would come, that he would bring them out of their bondage and lead them to a land flowing with milk and honey. The land of promise. A land that would be given to them and to their children. The land promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And you know that the Lord sent Moses to proclaim liberty to the captives, as it were, to take the keys of bondage away from Pharaoh, declaring in Exodus chapter 7, the Lord, he declares this to Pharaoh, the Lord, God of the Hebrews, has sent me to you, Pharaoh, saying, let my people go wilderness. Pharaoh's heart. Again and again, unwilling to let the captives go. Until there came a time when he could resist no longer. When he finally succumbed and obeyed the command of God. And when Israel left, Exodus chapter 12 and 32, or 33, their, their leaving is described as leaving in haste. They are taking flight and doing so quickly. Israel was commanded to leave the land of bondage and to do so in haste. Hurry and go. But don't hurry and go because you are afraid. She's been oppressed. She was in slavery. Bondage there in Egypt. If you remember our studies through Genesis, Egypt is a type of the world. It, it is meant to represent sin. It represents the ethos of this world. You remember when Abraham goes, listen to this, down to Egypt. In Exodus, in Exodus, Genesis, I'm sorry, chapter 12, he goes down to Egypt. And down in Egypt, he attempts to deceive the king by calling his wife his sister. The spiritual trajectory of Egypt is, a down, is downward. The spiritual trajectory of those who walk in step with the world is spiritually downward. God has liberated his people. They must go up out of Egypt. Egypt was a place that represented, represented sin. And God is now calling them to go up out of Egypt and into the wilderness where they can worship God. The haste is not out of fear. The haste should be out of desire to have communion with God. 
I am flying quickly. I am taking flight to go to the place of worship, not fleeing in fear per se. We'll get more, I think, to that in just a moment. In order for Israel to worship God in the manner that God has designed, they must be completely liberated from the rulership of Egypt. They must be out of, of the over... Uh, of the rulership of Egypt in order for them to worship God in the way that God has designed for them. God has determined that it is not fitting for his people to both be in Egypt, the land of bondage, and to offer at the same time proper worship to him. Does that make sense? It's not fitting for his people to be in a place of bondage and at the same time worship him there in the way that he has commanded them to worship him. They must be out of bondage in order for them to offer right worship to God. So go quickly. For the purpose of offering right worship to God. They must be removed from the rulership of Egypt. They must be under his rulership. In order for them to offer proper worship to him. Therefore God calls them flee, fly, fly to the wilderness. What is this place in the wilderness? It is a place of freedom. Freedom from the bondage and rulership of sin. There in the wilderness, they would learn that Pharaoh is not their God. And Pharaoh is not their ruler, but Yahweh, the great I Am, He is their ruler. He is their God. The place in the wilderness is where God declares to the people, His people, You are mine, and where we declare to Him, We are yours. To saints of God, we have been given a greater deliverer. A greater deliverer than Moses. The deliverance of Egypt was but a shadow of the deliverance that we have been given by Christ, who has come to set, truly come to set captivity, not just physically, but our souls free from the captivity of sin and Satan. We have been set free spiritually from the bondage of the world, the flesh, and the devil. Satan is our defeated foe now. Paul said, you are no longer a slave in Galatians 4, 7, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. If your faith is in Christ. In Revelation 12, 14, in just a few verses. that has covered our sin in the person and work of Christ, the royal son. Our fleeing is therefore not in fear, but in joy. joy. I have been liberated. If you've been set free, and they said you're free to go, would you run in fear or would you run in joy? Would you fly away from the place of bondage and fear? Or would you fly to the place of freedom that is ahead of you? You would say, I'm I'm going to soar, as it were, on wings of an eagle. I'm free. The place in the wilderness that has been given to the woman is a place of freedom. And in Christ, you are free to fly. You are no longer bound by sin. Sin is shackles. Sin holds you down. Sin, it's a weight on your shoulders, just like Christian through Pilgrim's Progress walks around with this great weight on his shoulder. He can't shake it until... 
he believes in the gospel of Christ and all of a sudden he's, he feels weightless. All of a sudden he feels like, like he could fly. Oh, we've been given wings, dear saints. The place in the wilderness is a place where God declares to you, you are free. So it's not in fear per se. But it's out of joy of the freedom that we've been given in Christ. We take flight to the place. We'll talk about the place that God has prepared for us in the wilderness. And there we declare there is no freedom. There is no nourishment in Egypt. There is no freedom in Egypt. There's no freedom in sin. There's no nourishment in sin. Though I thought there was, I've come to now know and experience and enjoy true freedom for the very first time. We do not lament the worldly temporary pleasures of Egypt. We don't lament the time when we sat around pots of meat. But we declare by our flight to the place that has been prepared for us in the wilderness that we have meat and drink that the world cannot provide. It is to do the will of God. Oh, that fulfills us. That satisfies us. Sin wasn't doing it for us. Sin wasn't nourishing us. Sin was holding us down. But we've been given wings. And now we know true freedom. It's been given to us in that place in the wilderness. We can, we can say such things and we can affirm such things because we've been given the mind of Christ. Oh, dear saints... You can now hear these things being said to you and you can reason them and say, I agree, that is good. The things that Christ would say are good, you can now say are good because you've been given His mind now. Formerly, our minds were depraved. Formerly, our minds would reason that sin is good, that Egypt is where we are fulfilled. But now we see, because our minds have been renewed by Christ and we've been given the mind of Christ, that sin and Egypt no longer satisfy Revelation is a place, uh, the place prepared for us in the wilderness. It's a place of liberty. It is also a place of protection. Revelation 12, 9, John will say again and again and again, five times again, that Satan has been thrown down. And in his being thrown down, he persecutes the woman. Defeated, he is. Pursues the bride of Christ, he does. And when he does, we are given wings to escape. We are protected from all of his advances. In what way? Does this mean that you and I will never suffer physical affliction? No. Not in the least. We've learned this already, haven't we? We've learned the answer to that question already. In verse 15, Satan sees the woman, has taken flight to the place prepared for her in the wilderness. And so what he does while she's in the wilderness is he attempts to pour from his mouth a flash flood. My family and I were driving through 395 a couple of weeks ago. And my wife said to me, beautiful, on both sides, the only thing that, uh, she's Googling what to look out for, the only thing that they say to look out for in areas like these are flash floods. They come suddenly. that They come upon you unexpectedly. What is this flood that pours forth from the mouth of Satan? We've learned that when something comes forth from the mouth of Satan, it is meant to communicate uh, deception. 
When we see something coming forth, flowing forth, or pouring forth from the mouth of Satan throughout Revelation, it is always meant to communicate deception. Well, how will the bride be protected through this spiritual deception that Satan tries to pour out on us? Verse 16, the woman is helped by the earth. And the earth opens its mouth and drinks up the river which the dragon poured out of its mouth. We shall not be deceived, in short. We'll talk about this when we get there. We shall not be deceived. We have been given, again, the mind of Christ. We've been blessed with right reason to know truth from error. The place prepared for us in the wilderness is a place of freedom and protection from deception. You shall not be deceived. Uh, I don't mean... um, Well, take this how you may. It's why you're in a good church. It's why you're not in the church where heresy is taught. Because you are being protected from the the flash floods that are coming from the mouth of Satan. You will not be deceived. When something comes across your ears that you hear that seems susceptible, uh, that seems to be questionable, you automatically pause and say, I'm not sure about that. How is that How is that so? It is evidence that you are being protected by God from deception. You will not be deceived. Will we get certain things wrong here and there? Yes, but you will not be deceived to where you will lose your soul. You're not a Jehovah's Witness. You're not a Muslim. I could go through a whole, other, a whole list of others that you're not. But your faith, you know, is in Christ and in Christ alone. To God. You're just, you're, are you just smarter than everyone else? Uh, do you just somehow have more wisdom than everyone? Or is this not the grace of God that has been promised to you who are His people that you shall not be lost to heresy? Praise be to God for that. You have friends that are close friends of yours that believe some of the most outlandish things even about Christ and about God and you can't believe that they would, as a Christian, utter such blasphemy against our Savior and call themselves at the same time a Christian. Are you just smarter than they are? No, God helped them. But God has helped you too. He has given you wings to escape the flash floods of deception and every false wind of doctrine. You shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. We have received the spirit of truth, Paul would say. The spirit of the world. uh, We have received the spirit, the spirit who is from God. So that we may know the things freely given to us. Which things we speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual thoughts. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12 and 13. God has done this. God is now doing this still. The place prepared in the wilderness is a place, saints, of freedom and protection. Those who are in Christ, we fly there in joy. Not in fear, in joy. In joy. Now, I, I, I was careful to say not in fear. It's not to mean that, that you should play with sin either. That you should toy with it because you have no fear with it. No, we flee from it as Joseph fled from Potiphar's wife. But because Joseph knew a greater joy. He knew a greater pleasure. Secondly, the place prepared for us in the desert is what? It is a place also of testing and perfecting. A a place where the church is tested and where the church is perfected. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God. Brothers and sisters, 
Is it not interesting that the place where the woman flees is not to a plush palace, but to a desolate wilderness? Throughout the scriptures, the wilderness is meant to represent a place of testing. Elijah was tested when he ran into the wilderness, and there he was nourished by God. Our Lord Jesus Christ, after he was baptized, was led by the Spirit of God into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. And there he turned away from all of Satan's advances and was ministered to by angels. Here in Revelation, John has in mind, though, the testing when Israel was liberated from Egypt and nourished by God while they wandered in the wilderness. Something very interesting about on the wilderness isn't, isn't there. It's barren. It's lacking. I remember driving again, 395, and looking to my wife and saying, what grows out here? Mountains. Mountains grow. It's desolate. There are dangers at every turn. Dangers from plant life. Dangers from wildlife. The wilderness is a place that poses many threats. And the woman goes there. Imagine the children of Israel hearing, the deliverer has come. He's calling us out of Egypt. Where are we going? Into the wilderness. It doesn't seem like a a, a great trade-off. Going from the heights of the majesty of Egypt, during its heights, really, to enter into the barren wilderness where God has promised that He has prepared a place for His people. But you need to go through the wilderness to get there. Where is this place that God is... What is this place that God has prepared for His people? Uh, It is a land. Yes, it is a land that God has promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But once again, you won't arrive there unless you go through the wilderness. The journey was to prove to be a testing of their faith to God. While in bondage in Egypt, the Israelites, as I said before, ate well. They would lament later that they sat around pots of meat. That they never, that, that what they would eat was never in question. They did not lack an abundance of water. I imagine there were also many other worldly pleasures in Egypt that were available to Israel. And God in His infinite wisdom saw, saw it fit to do this. To strip every single one of those benefits away from, from the Israelites. To strip them all away. In order to bring them to a land that was barren where those things were not. Where every single day they would have to trust upon God for food. Every single day they would have to trust upon God for water. Every single day they would have to rely upon God for all of their needs. So they would learn that man does not live by bread alone. But by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And while there, God did not delay his testing. I'm sure that sounds familiar for for some of us when we were set free. Uh, Testing did not come much, much later. It almost seemed to come immediately. They were immediately tested with whether or not they would believe in God. Whether or not God was greater than the false gods of Egypt. They were in the desert, in the wilderness, and immediately learned that Pharaoh had once again changed his mind. That his heart had once again been hardened And that he was steaming toward Israel with 600 chariots. That he was coming toward them. That he was pursuing the woman as the dragon now pursues the woman. 
Israel found themselves trapped between the army of Egypt and the Red Sea. And the people began to cry out in fear. Is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you took us away into dying in the wilderness? Why have you dealt with us this way, bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not the word that we spoke to you while we were in Egypt, saying, leave us alone, let us, let us serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. When faced with the test from God, they began to, to complain that, that life was better when they were a slave. It was so much easier when we were just going along with what Egypt demanded. Life was so much easier. And now you've brought us here to die. It would have been better if we had remained a slave rather than being liberated only to die in the desert. When they were tested, they began to complain that life is not fair. Life shouldn't be this way, not for me. They believed that they were facing something that they didn't deserve. That life owed them better. That God owed them better. That Moses owed them better. What is this place in the wilderness that you have brought us to? It was a place where their heart was being revealed. That even though they had been physically liberated, their heart was revealing that they still belonged to Egypt. That they were still a slave to Egypt, even though physically they'd been liberated. That in the depths of their heart, as Pastor Isaiah powerfully spoke last week, they were still both idolaters and adulterers. God's response through Moses, Do not fear. Stand by and see the salvation of the Lord, which He will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you have seen today, you will never see them again. Forever. <laughs> That's what... Verse 13 says of chapter 14, you will, almost the redundancy of it, you will never see them again forever and ever until all time. <laughs> the Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. And as you know, the Lord rescued his people. In one of the most celebrated miracles in all of scripture, God separates the waters, creating dry ground for the Israelites to escape, to escape from the dragon. And then, the Egyptians pursued them through the dry sea. You know what happens. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen, even Pharaoh's entire army that had gone into the sea after them, that not even one of them remained. While Israel, as it were, is standing on the shore observing it all. Something very powerful about what Israel witnessed on that day. Prior to the Egyptians being crushed by the waves, Israel wanted to give themselves back to Egypt. Prior to Egypt being crushed by the waves, Israel wanted to give themselves back to Egypt. Imagine you're standing there as one who formerly was crying, let me go back, only to see them crushed and smashed and covered by the waves. 
And you can almost imagine Moses in his mind saying, do you still want to go back? You still want to join them? Prior to being covered by the waves, they had only hoped in, in the power of Egypt, in the God of Egypt, as it were. And now, all that they had formerly trusted in has been swept away. By the one whom Moses said, his name is, is I am. I am has done this. As Egypt was crushed by the waters of the Red Sea, so also was all of Israel's hope that they formerly had in Egypt. Verse 31 says, When Israel saw the great power which the Lord had used against the Egyptians, the, the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. What is this place in the desert, in the wilderness? It is a place of testing. Peter would say, in this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable. Even Peter said, it's, it's perishable. Gold is perishable. You're more valuable than even that, even though tested by fire, may result, to found result, in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Christ. The seven churches in Revelation were in a type of wilderness. They were being stripped of all the benefits of belonging to the Roman Empire. They were losing their jobs. They were being called pagans by the religious leaders. They were being excluded from the norms of society. They were physically being persecuted and some even put to death. They may have been tempted to complain like Israel. Why all this trouble if I've been set free? Was it not better for me when I was a part of the normal pattern of the world? It wasn't, wasn't it better for me when I perfectly blended in? I didn't have all of this trouble. Did God cut me out of that pattern of life only to rot here in this, this wilderness? Because that's what it feels like. Dear saints, the world is not your home. Therefore, you should not expect the world to treat you as a fellow citizen. Never feel as though the world owes you better than it gave to Christ. Never be among your co-workers and think, they should be treating me better than the way that they're doing. Are they believers? No. Then don't expect better than what they gave Christ. What was the purpose of their wilderness experience? Paul, uh, Moses will say, You shall remember the Lord your God led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness to humble you and to test you, to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep His commandments or not. So He humbled you. He allowed you to hunger. He fed you with manna which you did not know, nor your fathers know. That He might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that comes proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. It's through the wilderness and all the dangers and challenges that it presents that God tests our faith and perfects our faith. It is in the place that God has prepared for us in the wilderness, not the wilderness, but 
the place of God prepared for us in the wilderness, that we are that we are deified, that we are made like Christ. It is through the wilderness, with all of its temptations, that we learn to say with Christ that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. What is this place in the wilderness? It's a place where we are made like Christ. Because we are not just tested, we are perfected. Often when we face trouble and suffering, we want to apologize to the one who is experiencing suffering. We want to say to them, I'm so sorry. I am so sorry. You're I'm so sorry that you're experiencing difficult. I am so I am so sorry that you are experiencing hardship. I'm so sorry for your difficulty. We, we, we tend to we, we tend to only want to acknowledge and give attention to the lower parts of their suffering. Let, listen to how I said that. The lower parts of their suffering. Suffering does exist, but there are different aspects of it. And we only, when someone is suffering, want to address the lower parts of the suffering. But do you realize, I had to pause through, as Sony texted me last night and asked me, what are we doing yet tomorrow in, in preaching? I had to pause because there was... There was something that caught my attention as I began to look at the, the, the normal pattern of how the saints of God address the saints of God who are suffering. You know, the saints of God address the saints of God who are suffering in the scriptures in the exact opposite way that you and I most normally address those who are suffering. Listen to Paul. In this you greatly rejoice. Even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. See what Peter does? Peter automatically goes to the higher points, the higher parts of suffering, not the lower parts. He addresses the suffering, but he addresses and focuses all of attention on the higher parts. He does not spend a long time lamenting over their suffering. I'm so sorry. I am, I'm so sorry. You're suffering? I'm so sorry. Now, let me, let me say this carefully, not to undermine the fact that we are suffering. We suffer. But Peter said it's necessary, though, for, for a while. Because the testing of your faith is necessary if you want to bring, ultimately, he goes to the end, praise and glory and honor to Christ when he's revealed. Do you see what he does? He goes, uh, rejoice, you're suffering, but the suffering will produce praise and glory and honor to Christ. So though it be suffering, it will be for a little while that ultimately has a greater purpose that you must focus your attention on. Because we only, most often, want to stay just in the lower regions of our suffering. I'm suffering. It's difficult. It's hard. I don't know why life is being this hard to me. God, why are you being this hard to me? And Peter says, uh, let's turn it upside down now. Okay, it, the, the, the glass is all filled at the bottom. Now, let's turn it to the top so that you can see the real reason, the glorious reason, the joyful reason, the goodness behind all of your suffering. It's to make you like Christ. Well... If that's the goal, if that's the purpose of it all, then let me rejoice in my suffering. Peter would say, and don't be surprised. Don't be surprised that you are in the wilderness. It's the place that God has saw fit to make you like Christ. Through which, there's a place through which God brings you, and in that place He makes you like Christ, but the wilderness is a part of it as well. Peter would say, don't be surprised fiery trouble, trials, ordeals, don't, don't be surprised by it. 
Don't be surprised by the testing of your faith as though something, he says, and I love it, something strange was happening to you. Why is this happening to me? And only me. I look around and I don't see everyone going through what I'm going through. Why is it only me? Peter says, stop that. Don't, don't start looking in the mirror and saying, what's wrong with you? Why just you? Peter says, you are not going through something uh, peculiar or, or uh, something that, that everyone else around you who serves Christ is also not going through. So don't think that God has just fixed his cloud on you and you are the only one who is a Christian walking around with a dark cloud over your life. It's not just you. Whatever that character was from Peanuts Gang, you're not that character. Instead, God has provided these sufferings for you to make you like Christ. So keep rejoicing because ultimately it will bring glory when Christ is revealed to your life that you have endured. Peter addresses the higher parts of our suffering. This has come so that you can be like Christ. So don't be surprised when it comes. Do you want to be like Christ? Then don't be surprised when suffering comes. It's what God does for those who are his. James says... Count it all joy. (laughs) How we need to read that more often in our daily readings. Count it all joy. Whenever you face trials of many kinds, for these produce. Do you see how he doesn't stay there long? He doesn't stay in the trials long. He almost seems to kind of um, speak over them. Trials. Rejoice though, because this is what it produces. No discipline, Paul would say, is pleasant at the time. But God's treating you like a son whom he loves. Good fathers discipline their children to make them better. Bad fathers ignore them, give no attention, and allow them to continue on in their sin. What is this place prepared by God in the wilderness? It is a place where we are tested. It is a place where we are perfected and made like Christ. How long? 1,260 days. What is this? We know that it is the symbolic time of the tribulation, which we now suffer through. You are right now wilderness wandering. But God has made a place for you that he's prepared in the desert. While you wilderness wander, what is the place? Third and final point. It's the place where you are nourished. Now let's, let's, let's end the suspense, should we? What is this place that God has prepared for us in the wilderness? All right, you ready for it? It's the place where she's nourished. Where is it, pastor? Stop. Tell me. Well, look around. You've been sitting in it this whole time. It's the church. It's the gathering of the saints on the Lord's day to meet with God. It is the oasis in the desert that God provides for you week after week as you continue to not wander. You're not wandering anymore, are you? Wanderers don't know where they're going. Sojourners do. Pilgrims do. I know where I'm going. I'm heading to the heavenly city. I see its lights in the distance. And each Lord's day, God provides for me a place where I get to meet with Him and taste that which is still yet fully ahead of me. Dear saints of God, where is this place that is provided for us in the desert? It is 
the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the gathering of the saints where God has declared that he will meet with his people. And what do we do when we meet? We celebrate our freedom. We celebrate that we have been set free from bondage. It is here that we celebrate that Satan has been defeated and that Christ has risen from the dead. It is here that we are protected. I heard a minister say recently, it's here where sin ceases. We put an end to all of our sin and we come and to worship God. It is here where we are we are perfected as we go back out to be tested. It's here where we are changed and where our faith once again is solidified. It's here where we are nourished for our travels. You come and you partake of the Lord's Supper. You eat of the bread and of the cup. You hear the word of God. You hear the law. You hear the forgiveness of sins. You remember that you have been baptized. And all of these things and more, they are to be encouragement for you, nourishment for your souls as you continue to journey on to the heavenly city of God. It's here where we are given meat and drink of God's word. Through the preaching of the word, he gathers his church, snatching them from the clutches of Satan. Michael Horton says, through the sacraments, he strengthens his church that she might be able to withstand the wiles of the devil. The Holy Spirit produces faith in our hearts through the preaching of the gospel and he confirms and strengthens it through the sacraments. It's in the waters of baptism that we behold the work of our Savior and what he's done for us. The one who bore our judgment that we deserved that we might live in him. At the table of our Lord, our dear Savior calls us to come break bread into fellowship with him, to eat and drink, drink of the cup of bitterness that is now a cup of celebration. Amen. Here we taste the powers of God that are ours in Christ Jesus. It's here. Our hearts are subdued. We sin no longer while we're here. Our lust for the world, it ceases. It yields to God and to His Christ. We find joys that are greater than what the world can provide for us. And only those who belong to Zion know these things. Here we will celebrate the wedding supper of the Lamb that we have all been given an invitation to. Our dependence here is nourished by God. And our trust in the world is crushed as the army of Egypt was crushed so that we can look at it and say, there's nothing for me there. There's nothing for me there. It's why we should not neglect the gathering of the saints. It's why if you are a member of this church, you go to this church. Because not only are you here for you, you're here for each other. Let, let me stop on that. If you go, I'm going to go visit my friend's church. I'm going to go visit so-and-so's church. What church have you committed to? Who have you said, I will walk with you to the place that God has called us to, I will walk with you. To go other places here or there, be church hopping while you're a member of another church. 
It's a shame. Because you're saying to the people that you said, I will walk with you, I don't care enough about you to be here for you. I'm only here for me. And when we're going here and there, we're only going for us. We're only getting what we want and not thinking, I'm a member here. I promise to walk with Doreen. I promise to walk with Ophelia, to walk with Dominga, to walk with Anthony, to walk with Tony, to walk with Isaac, to walk with Scott. I promise to walk with you. It's why we must not neglect the gathering of the saints. Because here we are nourished and here we encourage each other to keep on going. Keep on going. The lights are just ahead. Keep on going. And when we're here, we get a taste of it. It's good, isn't it? Let's keep on going. We will get there. On our own, we're weak. Take away the nourishment that God provides for us on this Lord's day. And you will most certainly go down. Take away God's presence that He provides for us each time we gather and you will most certainly go down. You may still be walking, but nourishment produces health. Are you feeble? Are you weak? Are you regularly attending the gathering of the saints because it is the place where God nourishes you through the wilderness? Here, all is stripped away. (laughs) Almost literally. Here, we find that our satisfaction is found only in God. It's not in the music, obviously. It's not in the, the lights and the show, obviously. More and more finding it's just God and all that He has promised to give to us that is for our nourishment. So that I could say, when 7 o'clock or 8 o'clock hits my alarm, when Pastor Isaiah or myself come and say, now here is the call to worship that we could say along with the saints of all time, I was glad. I was glad when they said unto me, Let us go to the house of the Lord. What is this place of nourishment? Is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you long to be nourished by Him? Then a few moments then, taste even more and see how good our God is. Let's pray.